Hello, and welcome to Moderate Party. I'm your host, Hilary Lombard. Let's get started. The United States is caught up in a partisan war, pulling apart politicians, communities, even families. Differences that have been simmering for years are stoking America's famous melting pot, and it now looks set to boil over. One in six Americans have actually stopped talking to a family member or, or a close friend because of politics since the 2016 election. But we're actually more polarized than the Israelis and Palestinians. I'd like to punch him in the face, I'll tell you. Any guy who talked that way was usually the fattest, ugliest SOB in the room. And if you see anybody from that cabinet in a restaurant, you get out and you create a crowd. And you push back on them. The anxiety in America right now is spilling out into the streets. A horrific scene in Charlottesville, Virginia, a white nationalist rally that descended into deadly violence and chaos. One people, one nation, A rally turned violent in California yesterday. The reality is we have had people trying to steal our nation out from under us for decades. You're the one that has no pride in what you're standing for. You're scared. Protesters on both sides of the political divide took to the streets. The hate boiling over. Far-right Proud Boys squared off against Antifa and other counter-protesters. Protesters fighting with fists and clubs. Confederate flags on full display. All of it is fueling an extraordinary amount of political hostility right now. So things are going great. It's no secret that we're more divided as a country than we've ever been. Well, except, you know, the time that we actually fought a war against ourselves. Civil War was up. But it's not a great place to be, Right. We have a gridlock in Congress, families aren't talking to each other because of political disagreements, and things are starting to turn violent. A gunman opened fire on members of Congress at a baseball practice. The world looked on in horror as white supremacists gathered in Charlottesville, Virginia. Protesters are clashing more frequently and more violently every day. And lately, the only thing we can agree on is how much we disagree. We're a country that can only find unity in our anxiety. President-elect Joe Biden campaigned on unity and promised to be a president to all Americans. It's time to put away the harsh rhetoric, lower the temperature, see each other again, listen to each other again. We have to stop treating our opponents as our enemies. They are not our enemies. They are Americans. The Bible tells us to everything there is a season, a time to build, a time to reap, and a time to sow, and a time to heal. This is the time to heal in America. But citizens don't seem to be on the same page. Five days after that speech, Trump supporters bear-maced members of Antifa in Sacramento. And the two groups brawled in front of the state capitol. It's looking pretty grim, guys. But there's hope. We're not the first country to deal with deep division, and we will not be the last. South Africa rebuilt after apartheid. Ireland healed from the troubles. It can be done. So on today's episode of Mod Pod, I'm going to talk to a man who worked on both of those conflicts. Our guest today, Tim Phillips, is a very impressive guy. Tim has helped catalyze the peace and reconciliation process in several nations, including Northern Ireland, El Salvador, and South Africa. He's advised the United Nations, the State Department, 
And he's a frequent speaker in national and international forums, including the Council on Foreign Relations and Congress. So it's safe to say he's an expert. Tim is the CEO of an organization called Beyond Conflict. They do the hard work necessary to open pathways for progress in peace talks, transition to democracy, and national reconciliation in the aftermath of division and violence. Pretty relevant right now, wouldn't you say? Recently, they brought their skills home to America. They dug into the psychology behind our division, and their findings were released in a report titled America's Divided Mind. Guys, I highly recommend that you read it, because it gives reason to hope. It shows that we don't actually hate each other that much. And we don't disagree half as much as we think we do. But he's going to break it down for you. I hope you guys enjoy. Tim Phillips. Tim, thank you for joining us. Good morning. Good morning, Hillary. So do I have it right that you grew up in Boston? I did. Um, some people say I never grew up, but I do live here. Um, and this is my home. My question given your very impressive resume, is how do you go from a kid growing up in Boston to a beacon of peace in the free world? <laughs> well, that's a stretch that most of my family would uh, chuckle at. The um, I grew up in a pretty modest blue collar background. I was the youngest of six children. My siblings were the first to go to college in our family. But I, I often say that I think uh, the way I grew up, not only being the youngest of six children, but also growing up in the community we grew up, I think I knew what exclusion felt like. I knew what um, humiliation felt like, and I knew what um, the feeling unwanted, not within my family, but often as I sort of went outside my community felt like. And I think that sort of grounded me, plus I think a real interest in the world at large uh, to go out in the world. And I think I was grounded in a sense of what it feels like personally. Like at what point do you decide to pivot into a career in essentially conflict resolution? Well, it's, I think it's one of those things that a lot of us have sort of creative impulses and, and curiosity and a sense of like, what can we do about this? And for me, you know, I, I guess I was born at a time and come of age in my late 20s when the Cold War ended in Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union. So you had sort of the rise of democracy, the collapse of communism, all of these exciting transitions happening. And so that, you know, I came of age at that time and traveled to the region and met all these former dissidents uh, who fought against dictatorship and were now trying to form and run these new governments. And there was a lot of help coming in from the United States and Western Europe about how do you write you know, democratic uh, constitutions? How do you build those democratic structures? Uh, and also, how do you build a market economy? But nobody was helping them think about what, is, what does communism and dictatorship or repression do to you as an individual in families and communities and a nation? Will you keep your head down? Will you sort of contract? Will you're fearful? You don't know who to trust. Um, and the state pretty much controls your daily life. You know, it's hard to go from what is kind of a tr national trauma to where you can occupy these new democratic institutions with confidence. And my sort of insight, I guess, and intuition was, you know, all this other work is really important and you can create a democratic set of government institutions, but are you creating a democratic culture? So how do you define a democratic culture? Well, uh, that's a really big question. To me, a democratic culture is a culture that recognizes the inherent dignity and self-worth of the individuals who reside within that country. And it's expressed through 
democratic institutions, democratic elections, where the franchise is given to everybody um, who is a citizen of that country. But fundamentally, it is a system that allows people to express who they are in a democratic way that also not only respects a common good, but there's also a social contract involved. It's not just about rights, it's as importantly about responsibilities. What responsibility do you have to others around you? And I think that to me is really key in a democracy. What do you think is the biggest psychological barrier when you're going from not having a democracy and transitioning into a democratic culture? It's almost as if, what does this feel like? I think that's really important is to recognize that it's not like people sort of feel like, ah, well, of course, this is what I should be doing. It's a process of gaining confidence, gaining experience, recognizing you can make mistakes, but really setting norms, democratic norms about what is expected. And I think that's really important. What do you see as the consequence when a society starts to break their democratic norms? Well, all hell breaks loose. Um, a friend of mine said after the 2008 um, financial crisis, he said, you know, markets, currencies are at the end of the day built on confidence. And democracy is the same. It's built on confidence. You know, will it work? Will it survive? Will it survive stress? Norms play, for example, a huge role. If there's one thing we've learned over the last few years, everybody talks about democratic norms. And a friend of mine joked, who is this guy, Norm, that I keep on hearing about? And the reality is norms are really important. Those are the, as we know, the unwritten rules. What you expect in a relationship. What's appropriate in a relationship? You know, what's the bond that people have, not only as citizens of a nation, but members of a family or anybody in a relationship? I mean, that's fundamentally what it's about. It's about a relationship. And I think it becomes abstract and easy to sort of ignore when it's on a larger scale. But it's fundamentally about what happens in our own personal relationships. What are the expectations and responsibilities that we have of, of each other? And to me, it's really related to the notion of trust and social trust. And, and trust is built on the ability, as much unconscious as conscious, to be able to predict on a consistent basis that that person will be there for you or the family member will be there for you. And, you know, it's interesting. There was some research that showed that gross domestic product is more influenced by social trust than other forms of equity. Which would be like why the stock market goes up and down based on what the president says, right? Yeah. And, and so I think that's really important. I think we talk about norms and it's people recognize it's important. There's more and more evidence coming out of brain and behavioral science as social animals, how norms have a huge impact, probably the dominant impact on our behavior. How do you think that the democratic norms in American political society are faring during the stress test of the last four years? It's really been under huge, not just pressure assault, and that really concerns me the most. Um, you know, one thing that happens in a society that's that's really polarized is not only people begin to um, lose trust, but they worry about betrayal. They worry about, wow, how could other Americans vote for this person or that person? Mm -hmm. And if I can't trust my fellow Americans, then who do I trust? And that goes back to norms and social trust. 
which is core to any relationship. You know, leaders play a huge role um, in shaping our our sense of bonds, relationships, communities. So uh, yeah, it, it's taken a big hit. I think in the coming months and coming years, I think Americans across all political and other sort of divides have to step back and ask the fundamental question. Do we want a country or do we want power? And what's really interesting, one of the great privileges of my life is getting to work with a no Nelson Mandela, and he was on our advisory board. And when I would bring people from Northern Ireland or other countries to see him when he was still president, and people coming from profound divides who truly saw the other side as evil and not even fully human, he would say to them, and he had the credibility after 27 years in prison, He said, be tough on structures and institutions, but not on each other. And he said, I had a choice. I was mad. I was angry. I spent many years in solitary confinement. My people had suffered. One of the most brutal regimes you could ever imagine. And I had to make a choice in the isolation of my prison. Do I want power or do I want a country? What do I want to pass on? You know, he's become so iconic that people think of him as he's on a mantle and he's not like us. But he was a very human person. And uh, there was one moment in 1990 as he was coming out into the world and giving that famous speech as he was coming out of prison, a speechwriter from the African National Congress gave him a draft. And when the speechwriter met with Mandela one-on-one, there were all these handwritten corrections. And one of the corrections that Mandela made was F.W. de Klerk, who was then the president of apartheid South Africa, is a prisoner, is an honorable man. And the speechwriter said, comrade, Madiba is what they called him at the time. How can you say that? Your people are angry. Their moment of liberation is coming. We could be in a civil war. Um, you spent nearly 30 years in prison. Your people are don't want to hear this and not ready for this. How can you say that? And in the privacy, Mandela reached across, held his arm and said, no, it is up to him to disprove it. Wow. He gave a bridge. He had all this moral and political authority, political in the sense of his political influence, but he didn't have power in the government sense. And he did something that a lot of his own family And supporters and communities said, you can't do that. We're not ready for that. We're angry. We don't trust. We have suffered. And he then made the calculation, do I want a country or do I want power? I need power, but I want it in the service of building a country. And that is really the most important thing is, is power for the sake of power for a short-term gain or is it power to contribute to sustaining and building a country. And I think that's the moment all Americans have to think about and decide on now, today. I don't mean just literally today, well, kind of today, but over the coming weeks, months, and years. That's such a timely question because I think when you look at the gridlock in Congress, we're seeing people struggle with that fundamental question is, do you want personal power or do you want to build a country? You see that we're not, we're not even passing bills, but yet they hold so much power Right. What do you think about that um, essential question as it's applied to the state of our Congress today? It deeply concerns me. 
uh, really, not only does it deeply concern me, and, and it should deeply concern every American, it's what leaders around the world that I know from our work have been telling me for months and years. And long before the 2016 election, 10, 12, 15 years ago, leaders, as much from the left and the right, because I had to work with all sides in those countries to end conflict and to help in transitions, is you need to work in the United States. Beyond Conflict is doing all this work around the world, but you need to focus in your country. And I would say, yeah, I know we have big problems, we have big challenges. And they were like, no, 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 no. We are deeply concerned with the direction your country is heading in. And like sort of canaries in a coal mine, they could sense it. It's almost like a big support group. Nobody has to explain this to them. They get it. There's no BS. They said, you know, we were trying to go from an us versus them sectarian tribal mindset to more of a you and I. Yeah, we can have profound differences, but we're citizens of the same country. We're building a social contract. We're building trust with each other. And even if trust takes time, we know the expectations of each other. That's where norms, by the way, are really important. You don't have to trust the other side, they would say in these other peace processes. You just have to be able to trust that the system you're creating will give each and every one of you a fair shot. And the direction we're heading in is, is deeply dangerous. And what these leaders would say to me is, you're actually doing the reverse. You're going from a you and I that we really respected and modeled to an us versus them. We can see it in the language. We can see it when we travel to the United States and in the media and social media. We can hear what your leaders are saying, the anger that's out there. And I wish the American people could hear this because even on the left in this country, elements of the left in other countries would say, don't be tough on each other as much as you can have profound disagreement. You know, don't dehumanize each other. Because what are your options? You know, in the in the African National Congress, I mean, over 90% of South Africa is black, not just Mandela, but leaders of the African National Congress in the late 80s, even before Mandela got out of prison, said, we came to realize that we would be never successful in transitioning away from apartheid if we didn't come to understand where the Africana people are coming from, what did they experience? What trauma, what loss, what fear did they experience as a community that they would set up a system like apartheid? And if we held all Afrikaners collectively responsible for apartheid, they'd be so emotionally burdened, they wouldn't engage. And think of that moment, right? We realized, wait a minute, eventually we will have power just to share numbers and where the trends were heading in terms of a transition. It could have turned into a civil war because leaders stood up and said no, that it turned into a negotiated process. But they made some profound decisions about how do we engage with the quote unquote enemy? First is to recognize what are their emotional burdens? What are they fearful of? People are afraid of change because they're fearful of the other side, right? We don't know what's out there. And in and and, and those moments where people are uncertain about what's on the other side is where leaders absolutely play a key role. In this country at this moment, we have to be, we have to have leaders because we have principally two political parties. Leaders on both sides have to sit back and say, what is the legacy we're leaving to our children and grandchildren? I mean, for the first time in my life, when I look at my nieces and nephews are having children, I actually worry about their future. 
I really do in this country. I, and I'm one of the most patriotic, I was an Eagle Scout American you'd ever find. And I remain that way. I love this country. It gave me the privilege from a pretty humble background to go out in the world. I was a nobody to go out in the world and bring people together. And why? Because I was an American. I was an American with no privilege, no background other than, I mean, coming from wealth or the right schools or anything like that, or the right relationships. It was creativity, ingenuity, drive, a lot of the things that we pride ourselves in as Americans go out there. And why did people listen to me? It wasn't that I was charming or anything. I mean, give yourself some credit, Tim. All right, all right. And I was convincing, but I was an American. And, and people respected Americans, even an obscure 29-year-old. And I don't, I, I really worry today if that would be the case as we go out the world as American citizens. Do you think American exceptionalism makes us blind to that kind of decline that we're experiencing within our own country? We, you know, I've been thinking of writing a piece called The End of American and Human Exceptionalism, meaning know, when I, when I was in grad school, I was in London and it's before the end of the Cold War, so I'm dating myself. And um, people were talking about American exceptionalism. And as an American, you know, in another country, I would say, well, we have the Constitution, a Declaration of Independence, the Bill of Rights. Look what we did in World War II and World War I. But I was young. And then having spent 30 years working in dozens of countries around the world, I think America, ever since the end of the Second World War, was in a really powerful position. We did a lot of good things and we did some bad things, but we did a lot of good things, right? But this notion that we're exceptional is sort of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's it's delusional. And, and the pandemic and climate change is showing us that, you know, human exceptionalism, you know, look what it's done to us globally. A virus that maybe emerged from one whatever bat uh, uh, in, in a market in Wuhan has laid down the entire planet. Indiscriminately. Yeah. And the other thing is, in our report that you mentioned earlier, America's Divided Mind, you know, working with brain and behavioral scientists, one of the key things we found in that research is it's obvious that polarization is deepening in this country. And a lot of it's becoming identity-based, us versus them. And what we know from science is when it turns into an us versus them way of thinking, that a whole range of unconscious psychological processes come online to drive us further apart. But a lot of that is shaped because we don't know each other and where we get our information. We listen to different, you know, uh, media networks, different social media platforms, who we talk to, where we live, who we associate with. And it turns out in our research that we're off by 50% on big issues, on like and dislike and on dehumanization in terms of how far apart the other side is and how much they dislike us. We overestimate by 50% on each side that the other side dislikes us or dehumanizes us. And that's a profound finding. And in fact, Americans are actually much closer together. So that's what gives, that's what moves it from darkness to light in my mind. Our task is to let people know that. Because once they know that, they can begin to change. Yes, the primary reason that I wanted to talk to you is just that we are in a very dark place. And when I read your report, I actually, I felt really optimistic. 
about what that could mean for us. So I just kind of want to back up to give the audience some context. I mean, you explained the premise of the report very well, but can we, I'd like to kind of go through the three areas that you identified in that report. So dehumanization, dislike, and then trust in institutions. So can you tell me how, let's start with dehumanization. Um, Can you first explain how that differs from dislike? Yeah, so one of the things we did, you know, I'm not a scientist, and when I started looking at brain and behavioral science over a decade ago, it was a very humbling moment because I realized that the Enlightenment got a lot of stuff wrong, right? That we're not these reasoned, rationally-based beings. In fact, we're just the opposite. We're emotionally-based beings. As one scientist told me early on, we can only think rationally when we feel that our identities are understood and valued by others. And that conversation got me looking at brain and behavioral science. And it was really humbling because scientists would say, focus on how we think, not just what we think, because how we think is so deeply unconscious. In fact, nearly 90% of how we think is below the level of conscious access. Mm. And, I, and I give you this preface to, to this report. And then one of the other really cool and important things that I learned that I think all of us should know is our brains evolved to be predictive and not reactive. And in fact, our brains are anatomically more efficient because they're predictive. So we're all the descendants of ancestors who recognize the lion in the tall grass. Those who didn't were eaten. So we are all collectively the descendants of people who learn to predict their social environment. And it has to happen in milliseconds because you can't stop and think, oh, is that lion hungry? <laughs> How far away is that lion? Too close. Right, or oh, that leopard. It, you got to move quickly. And it became as an evolutionary um, benefit to, to then predict rather than react. And so when we started looking at polarization in this country and we now had access to some brilliant researchers and scientists, we said, okay, what can we think, what can we do in terms of understanding that how our psychology works and the impact that polarization is having? And it's really amazing because you realize that, wait a minute, dehumanization and how we dehumanize others has certain processes in the brain. There are certain mechanisms and psychological processes around dehumanization and around issues like fear. In fact, we process disgust in the brain differently than fear. Oh, that's interesting. So I use this analogy. If you're on a plane and it's the middle of the winter and you're in an aisle seat and somebody comes next to you and sneezes all over you, particularly now in a pandemic, I hate to be that disgusting. Well, I do that because that's a disgust reaction. It's a pathogen threat. It's an ancient response that this could kill me. This is viral. It's a pathogen pathogen threat. So what do you do? You push the person away. You move. Your body moves, right? It's about eradication. But what if a bully from high school came on the plane? You have a fear response. What do you do? You put your head down. You hope they don't see you. Mm. Now, those are not just sort of on the surface responses. They're actually brain responses. And understanding them has a huge influence on what we can do to reduce dehumanization and disgust or reduce fear. And what we did in our report is say, let's understand these processes that are going on in the human brain, particularly at this moment of deepening polarization in the United States. And we started looking at, you know, the predictive brain, perceptions, misperceptions, and on a larger scale, meta-misperceptions. 
And, you know, we looked at big issues like immigration and open borders, gun control. Then we looked at like and dislike. And then we looked at dehumanization. And on several national surveys done with colleagues at the University of Pennsylvania, they would ask, for example, Democrats and Republicans. So as a Democrat, where are you on the issue of open borders and immigration? And so they would describe their own personal view and where they thought other Democrats were. And there were some strong positions in the Democratic view. And then we would ask Republicans the same and we'd get same strong, you know, strong positions. But we also found when we asked the Democrats and Republicans, there was a lot of middle ground that they were expressing about themselves in their own uh, partisan community. But when we would ask a Democrat, so where do you think Republicans are on the issue of open borders? They would say they want them completely closed. And when you'd ask a Republican about Democrats, they'd say, oh, they want them completely open. So we're looking at this research saying, wait a minute, there's a lot more middle ground. And in fact, on a lot of these big issues, each side misperceived by 50% how far away the other side was on big issues. And then asking people, Democrats or Republicans, so um, how much do you as a Democrat or your fellow Democrats like or dislike the other side? And then, you know, on a scale, it would be like in the 80s. Not horrible, not 100. But you'd ask the Republicans the same question, you'd get similar response. But if you ask a Democrat, how much do you think the other side dislikes you? It's way up. And Republicans would have the same response. And then on dehumanization. Wait, can I stop you there on yep. dislike? Yeah. Those numbers were so upsetting to me, like how disliked Americans are feeling or how ostracized from their own people they're feeling. What do you think drives that dislike? I think feelings of, uh, well, it comes down to the predictive brain. What do others think about me and us? So one other really important thing, a scientist told me a few years ago, who's written about emotions in the brain. She said, one of the key things that predictive brain is asking all the time is what do others think about me and us? Think about that in relationships and families at work and communities, you name it. It's just, it's part of the human experience. We and, like people that like us. Well, yeah. And of course. And why? Because it makes us feel safe. It makes us feel like we belong. We have a place to land. We have a place to belong and feel safe. It's really disturbing that people misperceive how much they're disliked, but it's not surprising because of, I'll be honest with you, a lot of the big media networks benefit from it. Um, and in social media, and then we get into these narratives. And this is where I go back to leaders have a huge influence because if you're hearing that they hate you, they dislike you, right? Then, you know, you're going to, you're going to believe that you're going to make these perceptions. You're going to, you're going to, oh, that's exactly what's happening. And even on dehumanization to see people as not fully human, to think that the other side dehumanizes you at such a large level is even worse than like and dislike because they don't even see you as fully human. For our audience, they don't see you as fully human. Can you give an example of dehumanization versus dislike? It's really uh, kind of a blunt and unsettling thing, but it's not surprising. As you know, years ago, we did a conference on dehumanization and the um, one of the scientists say that literally dehumanization is how we navigate our social world. 
So when you walk past homeless people, if you were to fully humanize them, you would stop. You would ask yourself, what is my responsibility? Do I have any responsibility? Should I give them money? Should I get them food? Should I get them shelter? And to be able to do that, not only is a moment of, it's not just empathy, which it is, and decency, but literally it's a requirement of additional energy going to different regions of the brain. And so we have a limit to how many people we can fully humanize at one time, unconsciously, just because of our brain's capacity to fully engage and make choices and decisions and think about these issues. Compassion fatigue, right? Compassion fatigue. And, and so what we wanted to do is understand, okay, what are these processes going on in the brain that lead people to do horrible things? And it's almost like a cascading effect. When you go from dislike, like, you know, I don't like those Democrats. I don't like those Republicans. I don't like their choices and what they say. And you may be having a very passionate view on that. Unconsciously, you're not thinking they're not human. They're just people you have a profound disagreement with and you may not want to hang out with. But to go down the slippery slope, cognitively, emotionally, to say they need to be eradicated, that they are not human. It's like our brain literally has to justify behavior by stripping them of their humanity. And awful things. If you want to think about the cleansing, genocide, um, you have to dehumanize people. The brain has to, in a sense, justify their extinction or their treatment because they're not like us. Not just politically not like us. You can have like and dislike. They're not fully human and deserving of this treatment. And as awful as that is, look at the genocides. Look what's happening with the Rohingya. Look what happened in recently in Syria. And the fear we have is if you think the other side in this country dehumanizes you at such a huge level, then people will willingly use, and we saw that in our report, democratic institutions, the courts, the police, the military to harm their opponents. Yes, I thought that was that was one of the one of the findings in the report that hit me the hardest is just like but it it's also in a way the most simple is like the more disliked you feel and the more dehumanized you feel by the other group, the more you're willing to do to keep them from getting power. Which kind of I think makes sense with what you're saying uh, with our predictive brain is that like we're predicting that these, this group that dislikes us and dehumanizes us, if given power, would do that more, correct? Yeah. And so, you know, I mean, for example, in Nigeria right now, we, we have had this initiative called Decoding Dehumanization, where we did a lot with other scientists and researchers, this research on how the brain processes dehumanization. And then with that research, can we design interventions to then reduce dehumanizing uh, behavior? Because you can predict it by people's language, by, you know, if you look back at the Rwanda genocide, there are months of where the government was using truly horrible dehumanizing language against the, the, the Tutsis um, and the Hutus. And they were saying they're animals, they're vermin, 
I mean, literally animalistic behavior. We can see this in World War II. We can, unfortunately, see even even recently. Is the more that happens, and particularly from institutions and leaders in power, it has a huge unconscious impact on people because it strips others of their humanity, and therefore, it could lead us to doing really horrible things or supporting policies that are dehumanizing. Yeah, or letting and it that, happen. And letting it happen. And and the other thing is going back to your earlier question.、Mm-hmm. You know, we have to be really careful and understand how much people fear. I think this election showed me how much fear is involved.、Mm-hmm. Increasing fear of the other, based on some reality, but also a lot of misperceptions.、Mm-hmm. Increasing fear of where this country is going and where is there a place in it.、Mm-hmm. And also. Feelings of contempt、mm-hmm. on both sides. People look down upon us. What do they think about us? They don't treat us as equals.、Mm-hmm. You know, do we live in the same country? And you know, one of the things I've seen in countries around the world, grievance is fertile ground for anti-democratic behavior. Yeah, I mean, historically too, like World War II, right? I mean,、yeah. Hitler's rise to power is all rooted in grievance. Yeah. So I guess I want to pivot a little bit to what are we going to do about it? Because that was the uplifting part, and I feel like we've we've gotten into where we're at. But I'd like to kind of talk through where you think we should be going. Well, one is I would love, and I really appreciate this invitation to speak.、Um, mm-hmm. As you said, you know, you felt, if I use your words, almost sort of like there's some good news. There's some a little bit liberating, like ah, we're in a bad spot. But there's a way out of it, and and I and we have found that literally when people read this news, that we are not as far apart as we think we are on really big issues and like and dislike and dehumanization. People feel relieved because people are looking for guidance. They're looking for hope, and this is across all divides, right? They're I'm talking about the American people. Nobody wants to feel this. Stress and anxiety, day in, day out. We want to know we, we're going to make we, it. We, yeah, we're going to. How, and particularly the the pandemic is creating all sorts of uncertainty, right? About what's happening next month, never mind next year. And on top of that, this national sort of political uncertainty and social uncertainty. So the good news is, as I've mentioned, is people are not as far apart on issues, big issues, but more importantly about feelings. And towards each other, and the big task that I and others have is how do we get this information out to people?、Um, and there's even evidence. We have colleagues at Harvard and other universities that have actually tested scientifically. If you correct these misperceptions people have, what does it do? It actually creates a cognitive shift in the brain. We're warm. We're not. We're not beyond repair. repair. We're warm to the other side. Like I may never marry into that family. Right, I may never vote for their candidate, but it dials down the tribal us versus them to you and I with really profound disagreement, and we can maybe find common ground in certain areas. And so, the more we get this information out, and we now have evidence that correcting these misperceptions actually creates a cognitive shift, which reduces feelings of emotions of anger and outrage. You know, but it needs to be reinforced. So. We're working with a group, One America, 
that works with a lot of mm -hmm. um, religious communities and also evangelical communities. So we're working with them and some evangelical churches in the Midwest is how do you get this information to their community about the nature of polarization, what it does to us, what they can do about it. We're also working with journalists and media organizations. Um, you know, not that is uh, sorry, that is actually a place that I, I wanted to press you a little bit because one of the recommendations in the report is that you need to engage opinion leaders and inform them about the dangers of polarization and like the impact it's having on us. And a question that I had um, is when we look at the media in particular, um, I think that that recommendation relies heavily on their better nature or the idea that they would that they would act in support of our country as opposed to their own self-interest. Because when you look at, um, I think Fox News is one of the biggest offenders of this. It's like, they are incentivized to drive polarization. How do you overcome that and incentivize them to de-escalate? Well, <laughs> um, you know, that's not going to be easy. I mean, we talk about, and it's real, structural racism, structural inequality, but it's also structural polarization. Right. So, yeah, Fox News in particular, mm -hmm. uh, but also radio in the last 25 years. Mm -hmm. But it's as much as, at times on the left. Of course. Um, and, you know, so we're not focusing at least initially on the owners of these big networks, because that would be naive at this stage. We're focusing on journalists, okay. you know, who don't realize because they're not trained otherwise how you know they create context in a story mm -hmm. how they write a narrative and they struggle with a we're accused of being purveyors of fake news mm -hmm. um we're, we're you know and, and the bullseye mm -hmm. and we've been doing a lot of workshops and trainings with journalists you know through different journalist organizations like around truth solutions journalism network and others and we're we're bringing together journalists and saying, here's what you didn't learn in journalism school. So empathy, the ability to empathize with another is contingent on context. Right. When you can see yourself and live the experience of others. Here's how a narrative could reinforce confirmation bias without them knowing that. So we're literally walking them through sort of brain 101. Mm -hmm. Here's how our brain works. Here's how confirmation bias works. Here's how our brain processes narratives, mm -hmm. even sacred values. So things that are sacred to us, and I don't mean just in religious, spiritual terms. Mm -hmm. I mean like the protection of your infant child. Many Americans, the Second Amendment. Uh, for many people, their religious values. Those are above compromise. And it turns out, when somebody tries to get you to compromise a sacred value, people respond with aggression and hold on more deeply. Because sacred values, are very important to people's core identity and members of groups. And we process sacred values in different regions of the brain than every other calculation we make. And so, you know, recognizing with journalists this, and they sit back and say, oh, wow, we're now thinking how we may be reinforcing polarization by the language we use, or trained to give both sides a story. It's like, well, that actually may be exacerbating polarization. And so giving them case studies and so forth. So one is to help journalists and editors realize who don't desire to be polarizing, mm -hmm. even how a headline an editor puts on could be polarizing. I'm not going to read that story mm -hmm. or that reinforces. Or and the so context we, you give or withhold, right? 
Yeah, exactly. So, so one is working when I say opinion leaders, religious communities, um, political leaders, uh, eventually with cultural leaders, they have a huge influence. Um, so we're looking with partners, and but we're doing it with evidence. We actually working with researchers saying, do we have actual evidence this works? Framing it this way works with people, and this is going to be a long-term project for us as Americans. Mm-hmm. So okay, so we're engaging um, opinion leaders, and uh, we're informing them about polarization. One of your other findings that I was interested in is facilitating a conversation between uh, groups that don't necessarily inherently agree. Right. Can you elaborate on that? So we counted that there are over since the 2016 election a lot of maybe over 100 organizations trying to counter polarization. Mm-hmm. A lot of well-meaning, great groups. We were out there trying to bring people together. Mm-hmm. So there are two or three really big problems. One is you and you could have really good dialogue in a community, and then something happens at the national level that then puts people back into their tribal identities. Mm-hmm. So that's why you have to look at national norms, leaders, and institutions as well. And then there are a lot of people who who participate in these dialogues, and they're already in a sense primed to do that. What about the vast majority who don't want to engage or have no interest or engage, right. or feel like there's nothing to engage about, mm-hmm. right? And so we're looking at two things. One is giving people this information about these misperceptions, because one thing I know in all the peace processes I worked with around the world, people are fearful of compromise, and many countries don't even have a word for it in their language, because it's about shame and humiliation and loss. Yikes! And so. You know what we see here is people are fearful to even engage in dialogue because they expect they're going to have to compromise some really big things. So it's not only like, and it's not just tied to what you're willing or not willing as an individual to compromise, but what you can't speak for your group, mm-hmm. and could you be ostracized from your group? And then and you're happens. homeless. Right? And then you're homeless, right? And a lot of that is unconscious, mm-hmm. and so. That's why so many people are not interested because it's too fraught with risk. But one of the benefits of our research is saying, actually, you don't have to compromise just to have a dialogue because you're much closer together than you imagine, right?、Mm-hmm. On some big issues, and you know they like you more than you imagine.、Mm-hmm. And by the way, they don't dehumanize you as much as you imagine.、Mm-hmm. So the the gap is closed even before. They're brought together, and what I would find in other countries, you had to bring people together for a long period of time to close that gap. That's such a good point. It's like it's not that we're even that far apart; it's that we just don't know that we're close together. Am I hearing you correctly? Yeah, that we're closer than we imagine.、Mm-hmm. So the need to, you know, the chipping away, like in, in classic negotiations and dialogue, you know, you're starting at really polar extremes,、mm-hmm. and slowly chip away to humanize each other, to build personal relationships. And to deal with big issues is a slow process of chipping away, and then you're like, "Wow, we've you know, we work now closer." And the benefit of this research is you don't have to spend months and years chipping away when you already know you're much closer, so you can get to the things that you have to really dialogue about. Right. And so that is really important. And one of the things we're doing is testing. 
you know, those frames. We're creating a toolkit for effective dialogue mm -hmm. that brings insights from brain and behavioral science that people can use to think about their own work and engagement, and also lessons from some of the most experienced practitioners around the world. Right. So, okay, my final question before I let you go is, do you consider yourself to be an uh, idealist or a pragmatist? I'm a pragmatic idealist. Cheater. Cheater. <laughs> yeah, and, I, you know, I also have realized in the last four years how privileged I've been as an American and how difficult this work is because, you know, I spent 30 plus years working around the world, cajoling, pushing, urging people to make peace with their enemies. Mm -hmm. People who kill people, people where there's generations of loss and suffering and anger and dehumanization and genocide and you name it, fear, anxiety. And then over the last four years, I've been like, wow, we don't have that. But the emotions of friends and families across different divides and like this work is really difficult. And if they can do it then we can do it. That's perfect. It's a perfect place to, to end it. So finally, if people want to keep up with Beyond Conflict and with the work that you're doing, how do they do that? Well, we have a website, www.beyondconflictint.org. And we have a mailing list. And we also are on Twitter. I don't, but uh, my team tweets a lot and uh, they can follow us there. One thing I would recommend is people can download from our website, the America's Divided Mind Report. And if they have any ideas, suggestions, or want to reach out and work with us, please let us know. We need to work together as a country. Tim, you're a dream. Thank you. Thank you so much. No, All right, guys, that's it for me. Join us next week for the latest episode of Mod Pod. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you liked it, feel free to leave us a five-star review. Thank you. See you next time. <laughs>